All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Is everyone doing okay? Good deal. If people try to trickle in, please um, scoot towards the, the, the windows and make room. Um, if, especially if you've got a big family like mine, come in with six folks, we take up like a whole row. So make some room if folks try to trickle in. But uh, it's good to see you this morning, and this morning's a little bit different. It's already a little bit different in that we've kind of had to change some of our... Um, you know, order of service that we're going to do as we continue to pray for Beth and Troy and Maya. But it's also different in, in light of the fact that we're going to be not yet returning to our regular series through Second Samuel. We will jump back into that starting next week and just keep tracking through that. Uh, but this morning, we're going to kind of just roll into what is kind of a tradition for us at Providence, and that is that Pretty much every single year around this time, we purposefully link the MLK Junior holiday with what is called the Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is next week. And the MLK holiday, all, we, we link that and all that it you know, stand, stands for historically with a call to end the sin of racism. We link that with the Sanctity of Life Sunday and all that that stands for with a call to end the sin of abortion. We link those two things together, not just because they're close together on the calendar, but because they're close together in the heart of God. Because they are both actually sanctity of life issues. And biblically, they are tied at the hip. They both flow from the same undergirding. But far too often, as we talk about pretty much every year, a lot of times we miss this and we treat these issues almost as like opposed to one another. And so just kind of observation-wise, it seems, as you look around the world and around churches in general, that a lot of times the people who are passionate about combating abortion are not the same people that are passionate about combating racism. And the people that are passionate about combating racism are not the same people that are compassionate about combating abortion. But for the Christian, we must be passionate about both because they are both sanctity of life issues. They are both gospel issues. They are equally these things. Equally sanctity of life issues. But sometimes, as Angela prayed, we're not very consistent with this. And so I've stood up here before and I've you know, called out the inconsistencies of like very strict Darwinian evolutionary secularists. And I've called out the inconsistencies of how, you know, for strict Darwinian evolutionary secularists, like that holds that all life, including humans, are just products of total randomness and survive and evolve via natural selection and the survival of the fittest. But if that, if that is true, then why are secularists themselves trying to help cure cancer? Or cure AIDS? Or end human trafficking? 
I mean, if people have evolved to where we are now by natural selection, by the survival of the fittest, then why spend trillions of dollars trying to save people that nature says are weak and need to die so we can evolve? You see how that's kind of an inconsistent life ethic? They shouldn't be contending for life of those with disease or other issues. When they're doing that, they're actually playing outside of their lane and grabbing from a Christian worldview. That is not a strict Darwinian worldview. But as much as we would call them out for being inconsistent with their life ethic, like on this side of the spectrum, Christians are a lot of times equally inconsistent on the other end of the spectrum. Like evolutionists should not contend for life. But they often do. And Christians should always contend for life. But we often don't. Instead, a lot of times we will pigeonhole the sanctity of life to just like the right of the unborn to live or the right of the elderly to not be euthanized. Now, sanctity of life is that. Absolutely, it has to do with that. 100%, yes. But it's not only that. The sanctity of life is not just that. The Bible calls us to a fully orbed valuing of life and a care and concern for all of life, not just pre-born and like at death, but everything in between as well, cradle to grave, really beyond the grave, to life after death. And so it calls us to be pro-life all the way, not just part of the way. Because the Bible over and over and over and over again calls us to a holistic and consistent life ethic. An ethic built out of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to save sinners from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. Every person because of our sin. And so Jesus came and he gave his life for people who despised him. He died on the cross in our place for our sins, that we might be rescued from our sin. And he rose again in victory and power, guaranteeing salvation for all who would believe. And note, he did that at much cost, personal cost to himself. Right? He didn't ask us to do something first. No, no, no. He paid the price for us. And so just completely not fair to Christ. But that's the gospel. And so now we, okay, those of us who claim to know Christ, have been called based upon the authority of Jesus and the example of Jesus. Don't separate those. To do just as we saw our Lord Jesus do, even if it means great personal cost. And so because he served us, we serve others. Because he cared for us, we care for others. Because he loved us at great cost, we love others at great cost. Because he helped us, we help others. Because he laid down his life and his rights For us, we lay down our life and our rights for others. Because he rescued us, we seek to rescue others. Spiritually and physically. They go together. As far as of Christ, we've been called to this. This is an implication or an outworking of the gospel. 
And so again, as we talk about the sanctity of life, we are talking about all, all caps on that, all human life, every aspect. And so being pro-life like our Lord, not just part of the way, but all of the way, consistently, across all issues. That's what the call is. And so what I want to do this morning is first I want to, for some of you, it will be a reminder. For some of you, maybe it will be teaching. But I want to just kind of lay down, you know, why Jesus calls us to contend for life. Just kind of give that, the theological foundation of that. Like, why is life, human life, sacred? And then I want to look at Luke 10 real quick. And then I want to begin applying this across a few issues in particular. And so let's just kind of get to it. First of all, why is life sacred? Why do we use words like the sanctity of life? Well, it's because the Bible teaches that all humans, okay, every single human ever is made in the image of God. Theologically, this is referred to as the Imago Dei. That's Latin for image of God. And it's a theological reality based upon texts like Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that Angela just read and that's printed in your bulletin that all people are created in the image of God. Okay, what is that? Well, that he put into humanity a spiritual intellectual and moral component that the rest of creation does not have. He put that into humanity alone. We alone, mankind, as magnificent and awesome as the rest of creation is, mankind alone has, bears inside of it the image of God. And this applies to all people. Okay? All people. Every single person. Made in the image of God. Every single person. Make sure you understand that. From the unborn to the orphan, to widows and the elderly, to persons of disability, special needs, to sex slaves and trafficked persons, to the destitute, impoverished and starving, to those struggling to survive because of dirty water, to illegal immigrants, refugees, People of different religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and yes, even different political and philosophical persuasions. All made, equally made, in the image of God. Biblically, the sanctity of life encompasses all of these things. And so what that means then is that all people, therefore, have inherent, value and worth and dignity and are equally deserving of respect, kindness, and bare minimum basic human rights, including for the unborn the right to live. And so, big word, two-dollar word, show you I do have an education. The epistemological undergirding of this and we're like, what did he just say? 
It just means like why we know what we know. The epistemological undergirding for the Christian's call to contend for the unborn, the orphan, the elderly, the sojourner or the immigrant, the refugee, persons of disability, individuals with special needs, minority cultures, the afflicted, the suffering, the impoverished, on and on and on we could go. All right, our epistemological backing for all of this is that theological reality that we talked about, the Imago Dei. That is why human life is sacred. Because we've been made in the image of God. And friend, this means you have been made in the image of God as well. Which means that your life matters. That your life counts. And so for anyone who struggled with my life has it turned out the way I thought it would. My life is meaningless. There's no real point in me being, you know, around. Friend, you have value and you have worth. You were created in the image of God on purpose, for a purpose. Your life counts. But understand, that is true of everyone as well. Everyone else's life counts as well. And so all life has value, all human life. All, yeah, every human life has worth, it has dignity, it counts, it's sacred because it's made in the image of God. And it's equally made in the image of God. There's not some people that bear the image of God more and some people that bear the image of God less, no. All the same, which is why racism and prejudice and a whole host of other sins and issues will shrivel up and die when we really get the Imago Dei. That all people are created equally in the image of God. And so to attack an unborn or any image bearer is to attack the very image of the created God. Because every human bears that image. So that's kind of that theological undergirding. So now let's just kind of jump over to Luke 10 and kind of frame a little bit of of a question that I think we need to learn to ask and then we'll kind of roll into a couple of applications of the sanctity of life in the world we live in. And so Luke chapter 10, this is on page 868 in the black cardback Bibles that are around you if you want to follow along. If you have a background in the church, and almost really if you don't have a background in any type of church uh, at all, you may be familiar with this. This is the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, page 868 in the Black Hardback Bibles, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, don't think lawyer like we know, this is like a, a, a scholar of the Old Testament. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. And Jesus said to him, Well, what's written in the law? That's the Old Testament. How do you read it? And he answered, and he summarizes the Old Testament with the same words Jesus does in the Great Commandment. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And he understands he can't do that. And so look at this. But he desiring to justify himself. So he's like, surely I can't do that. Let's let's limit it a little bit. 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And watch what Jesus does. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, okay, this is someone who was hated by the Jews because of race issues and religious issues. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come. And Denarii is like a day's wage. So take your salary, divide it up by days. He gave him two of those. And I will repay you when I come. And so then Jesus asked this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so do you see what Jesus did right here? This guy's asking, who is my neighbor? But Jesus is going, that's the wrong question. The question for those who truly love me is whose neighbor am I? Like that's what Jesus is getting after when he asked the lawyer, who do you think proved to be a neighbor? And so the real question for us to ask isn't what does someone have to do to qualify to be my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor am I going to be regardless? When God said we cannot define our neighbor, we can only be a neighbor. And so friends, a neighbor is something we are, not something we have. And what Jesus is telling us here is kind of like bare minimum for proving you are indeed a follower of his is to meet the needs of those around you. Whether they believe like you or not. Whether they look like you or not. Because the Samaritans were racially and religiously different. And so Jesus is saying that as believers, we are to, like, look what happened here, feed the hungry, shelter the weak, and help liberate the oppressed. This is loving your neighbor, bare minimum for the believer. Somebody says, how do you say that, Joe? How do you say this bare minimum? Well, think about Jesus' story about separating the goats and the sheep. Those who are just kind of nominally followers of Jesus, goats, from those who truly have experienced the supernatural saving grace of God, sheep. And how do you tell the difference? Well, what does Jesus say? Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For 
I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Then I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so let's ask ourselves, what kind of neighbor am I? And what kind of neighbor do I want to be? Am I a bad neighbor who, like the priest and the Levite, turns a blind eye to the hardships of others because they don't affect me personally? Or am I a good neighbor? Or maybe do I want to be this? Someone who notices people in need, has compassion for people who suffer, is willing to stop and help even if it's an inconvenience, refuses to draw artificial boundaries in order to avoid getting involved, helps strangers, makes costly sacrifices of time and money to serve people in trouble, even admitting being wrong in the past. We're admitting parents being horribly wrong. Friends, a good neighbor is one who is traveling the Samaritan's road again. And if he begins noticing, like quite repeatedly, that there are people in the ditch, you know, in in need of help, Well, he absolutely will help the one, but he'll also start seeking to address the underlying conditions that are causing so many people to fall into the ditch in the first place. And so as we come to these sanctity of life issues, we have to stop asking ourselves, who's my neighbor? And start asking ourselves, whose neighbor am I? And so with that in mind, let's look at a couple of sanctity of life issues affecting us and our neighbors. And so let's first talk about abortion for a minute. And just statistically, one out of every four women have had an abortion. Which means in here, probably dozens in this room. Not counting parents who may have forced it. Or boyfriends who forced it or left when their girlfriend refused. All right? And so if you are in that group and you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Do not walk around with the weight of that sitting on your shoulders. I know it hurts. But if you're in Christ, Christ has taken our burdens He has taken our guilt. He has taken our shame. He has taken our sins. They are not on us anymore. So don't reshackle yourself to those. He suffered and died in our place to pay for our sins so that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. No condemnation. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so listen to me. In Christ, your sin is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Don't reshackle yourself to it. You've been set free. 
Everybody who's trusted in Jesus has been set free from their sins. And anyone who would repent and believe can be set free. And so if you've never trusted Christ, then the call is to trust Christ. His arms are open to you to save you, to adopt you into his family, to be doubly his, created in his image and then redeemed by him. And so he holds out, trust Christ, trust him. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you about that. And so through Christ, God gives forgiveness and he sets free. But in that freedom, now we want to move forward. And so we need to talk a little bit about this. And so January 23rd, all right, not this week, but the next week, It'll be 46 years since Roe v. Wade was established, resulting in an established 60 million babies that have been aborted. Ten times the number of the Holocaust. And it's my prayer that this American Holocaust will end and my grandkids and my great-grandkids will look back on this time in our history just as we look back now on the time of slavery and more re recently segregation and think, how could you have done that? I think it will happen. I think people will wake up finally to the hypocrisy and the illogic that we live in with relation to abortion. I, and I think it will happen even outside of people grasping the affront that killing of a baby is to God. I think even scientifically people will wake up to this because we now have scientific proof that babies feel pain. Babies in utero feel pain. And we have 4D ultrasound machines that show babies sucking their thumbs and smiling. We know that brain waves and a heart is beating at eight weeks. For our firstborn, we didn't even know we were pregnant at eight weeks. Sarah was learning to slalom ski, and Haley's like, whop, whop, whop inside. We already have books or laws on the books that regard the life of the baby as truly a life as it relates to homicide or something like that. But there's still a lot of illogic with it. Because, I mean, if a woman gets in a car to drive to the clinic to have an abortion and she has a wreck and the baby dies, it's vehicular homicide. But if she had got to the clinic and had the baby aborted, same result, baby dies, it's just a choice. That is illogical. That doesn't make sense. What kind of bizarro world do we live in where the criterion for the right to life is being wanted? That train of thought, where, I mean, just track it. When the criteria of life is being wanted, that begins to sound a bit like Nazi Germany. You can live if we want you, but we don't want you, so gas chamber. And just historically, these pro-life convictions, they're, they're part of our spiritual DNA. As far back as the second century, the early church condemned the practice of abortion. It led to two times the number of women becoming Christians as men. But there's another characteristic of the early church that doesn't seem to have the same urgency today. And it happens to be inextricably linked to the prevalence of abortion in our communities. And it's this. If we're truly going to be pro-life, then we have to be anti-poverty. If we are going to be true, pro, truly pro-life, we must also be anti-poverty. And so just some stats here. 
In 2014, 49% of women who had an abortion had incomes at 100% of the federal poverty level. What's that? Well, that's a single woman, woman with no children living on $11,670 a year or less. 49% of women who had an abortion were at the poverty level. 49%. An additional 26% of women had incomes between that number, 11670 and 23340 per year. That's still not a lot of money to live on. And so not surprisingly then, inability to afford a child is among the top reasons a woman has an abortion. And friends, just straight up, this is why you find things like Planned Parenthoods in low-income areas. There's a lot of money to be made off of people in poverty. But back to this impoverished pregnant woman. Put yourself in her shoes. A new mother can expect to spend $2,400 on diapers, formula, and baby food alone. And that does not include things like furniture, clothes, or child care. And, and I'm assuming that they have Obamacare so that they're covered. If they, there's medical bills. And so we could just go on and on and on and on with these expenses. And you know, like if you've ever had a baby, just try traveling with a baby. You about have to rent a U-Haul to take all the stuff you need for an overnight stay, right? And it's expensive stuff. And so just, you know, as you're kind of like for the single woman with an unplanned pregnancy, living on less than $12,000 per year, raising a child seems impossible, even unsurvivable. And so for her, put yourself in her shoes, a five to ten minute procedure at the neighborhood clinic for 500 bucks that she may hate having. It seems like her only option to survive. And so this is why pro-life advocacy has to focus on the mother and not just the unborn child. She simply sees no other way. It's survival to her. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And certainly some of that needs to be abstinence, education, teaching God's design for sexuality and human flourishing. All of that needs to be part of the work. But we cannot be morally selective here. We cannot work to end abortion while being ignorant or unmoved by the social and economic factors that often contribute to it. And so if we're going to speak up for the unborn, we have to speak up for the poor. If we're going to be pro-life all the way, we must be anti-poverty. And changing gears, we also must be pro-racial reconciliation and anti-racism. And listen, I know for sure progress has been made. Absolutely, we celebrate that. But we're not there yet. And we don't hang our hat on Progress. That'd be like a serial adulterer who's like, well, I used to have affairs all the time. Now I just have them every now and then. And so, yeah, progress has been made, but our standard is not progress. It's not comparing to what we used to be. Our standard is Christ, and it's comparing to what we're supposed to be. And compared against that, yeah, Jim Crow may be dead, but his zombie's still walking around. 
Because over the years, when I've talked about abortion, a lot of times people will be like, way to go. So bold to stand and say that. Thank you for saying that. But when I've talked about race, it's not really been quite the same response. Or when I quote the great reformer Martin Luther, which I do often, you guys know that. No one ever comes to me and talks about his blatant and horrible anti-Semitism. But if I quote the great reformer Martin Luther King Jr., a lot of times somebody will come and say, now, you know, Joe, he was quite the womanizer. Why point that out about him if we're not going to point out the flaws of other heroes of the faith or even heroes or leaders of our nation. And so, friends, racism is not just releasing dogs or putting the hose on people. It's any level of prejudgment based solely upon someone's skin color. And it has individual and systemic components. That literally books and books can be written on, have been written on, and white folk need to read. But friends, make sure you understand that when I stand up here and talk about the sanctity of life as it relates to race issues, I'm not being political. I'm being biblical. Because ethnic harmony is one of the great themes of the Bible. It is all over the place. From Genesis 12 that says that all, uh, says that families of all nations will be blessed. To the end, Revelation 5 that says that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth will gather around the throne in joyous multi-ethnic worship of the Lamb. I mean, it's the refrain of the Bible over and over and over from the Psalms. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad to Jesus who's constantly talking about this. John 10, he tells the Jews, I have other sheep to gather who are not of this field. They did not like that when he said that. In Luke 10, Jesus, good Samaritan, we just talked about that one. You go out of the Gospels, you get to the book of Acts, the call for the Gospel to go to the Gentiles, and equality being, you know, being shown to Peter. Ephesians 2, the barrier of hostility torn down in the Gospel. And then in Galatians 2, 11-13, where we see Peter, who should have known better, drift back into his foolishness. And the Apostle Paul confronts him. Listen. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, all right, Paul's writing this to the church of Galatia. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, so before they came, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that there, and listen to this, conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That their conduct 
was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct, not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you enter the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you force them? And so for Paul, racial reconciliation is not a political issue. It's tied to the finished work of Christ. And clearly conduct, racial conduct of any level is out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so to be in step with the gospel, we must be anti-racism and pro-racial reconciliation. It's one of the great themes of the Bible. All over it. As is care for the sojourner, which can be translated immigrant or refugee. This is all over the Bible. And listen, I am not up here advocating about the wisdom of national laws or walls as it relates to immigration. Now, I will say, trying to twist Scripture to defend having a wall because heaven has a wall around it is one of the most hermeneutically inaccurate, gross abuses of Scripture I have ever heard of. And the guy who did that, uh, this is where I wish we had ecclesiological, ecclesiological hierarchy so he could be censured. But I'm not talking about... Uh, like. Conversation about laws and walls, that's an important conversation that needs to take place. Just people need to have a conversation. What I want to talk about as we think about this are people. Living, breathing, made in God's image people. People who have a soul. And so I am talking about how the church, okay, God's people, responds and shows Christ to immigrants and refugees. Not talking about national solutions. What do we as Christians do for people? Because we'll bemoan the abortion advocate for depersonalizing and dehumanizing a baby in the womb when they say, that's just a fetus, that's just a collection of cells. And we'll say, no, that's a person made in the image of God. But then sometimes we'll turn around and do the same thing with immigrants and refugees. Oh, those people, those criminals and drug traffickers coming over here, breaking the law, taking our jobs, wearing habibs. We don't want them around. And we do that. Do you see that we're doing the exact same thing that the abortion advocates are doing? We're depersonalizing. We're dehumanizing. Real people with real families. And again, I'm not saying throw, a law, throw the laws out. But I'm saying above and beyond that, these people are made in the image of God. Just as much as you or I or any unborn baby is. And therefore, they are deserving of dignity and respect and value and worth and love and care and aid from the church. God's people. Deuteronomy 10 says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, which is an immigrant or refugee, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Psalm 82, 
verse 3 and 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so to live up to the biblical ethic of the sanctity of life, we have to be consistent. I mean, clearly we're not to kill babies. We're not to euthanize the elderly. But it goes beyond that. We're to love our neighbor, care for our neighbor, and ask not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? And so even as we wage war for the unborn, let us do so being pro-life all the way. That all people, every single human life is valuable because every single human life has been made in the image of God. Every person. And let's not grow weary. Let's not get fetal fatigue as it relates to fighting against abortion. And let's not get fatigue as it relates to these other issues as well. Because nationwide change has happened before. With Wilberforce in England, with Lincoln in America, and then later Dr. King. And it can happen again. We can get there. But it's going to take everyone repenting of apathy getting engaged, advocating, and fighting, and lovingly fighting. It does no good. In fact, it harms to ruthlessly attack those with whom you disagree. That just starts the conversation with a wall. In fact, it doesn't even allow a conversation to get started because you're just talking past one another and you're just lobbing verbal grenades back and forth over social media. That does no good. But rather, let's speak the truth boldly in love as the Bible calls us to and as Dr. King modeled for us 50 years ago. He was peaceable. He was bold. And he argued like his arguments could not be made by an atheist. They could not be made by a Darwinian secularist. He argued from a sanctity of life, biblical ethic, that all men and women are created equal And he did so without being sucked into a tit-for-tat, venom-spewing process. He did so a lot like Jesus. And may we do the same. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, would, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, we come in repentance. None of us in this room are consistent. None of us, I mean, whatever area it may be, some of us may be more consistent in this area and less in this other area and vice versa for other people. But none of us are consistent. And so we come hungry to be healed. We come broken to be mended. And we come to you, our Father, for this. And Lord, you are good. 
and we are not. Father, help us to be consistent. Help us to be conformed not to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Help us not to descend into worldly tactics. but be Christ-like in our actions and in our thoughts. And Father, let us be, as a church, a safe place. Father, I pray for the enemy who be, may be trying to heap shame and lead to despair, people who've made bad choices in the past, perhaps. People who are feeling overwhelmed, perhaps, by racial proclivities they had in the past. Father, forgive us, change us, and heal us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Set us free and work in us and for us and as we've been talking about, through us for the praise of your glorious grace. and obedience to your word. And we ask this in Christ's name.